just um, add uh, two final thoughts to what we've been saying about the key and message of the book of Haggai. <clears throat> you will remember that we have discovered that the key is rebuilding. And from that we have discovered that this temple of which Haggai speaks is, of course, as throughout the Old Testament, a symbol of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ and his body as the dwelling place of God. We have we've discovered from that that just as in Haggai's day it was in ruins, it was desolate, so today we also face something of the same situation with the church of God. Whilst in its universal and timeless uh, aspect it may to some degree be untouched, Yet, as God intended the church to function here on this earth, it is in ruins. And so this book of Haggai has very much to say to us as we face the same kind of situation. From that, we have looked at many different aspects um, of the message of Haggai. We have seen that it is to a remnant that he speaks. We have seen the discipline that that remnant come under, a discipline which the majority of God's people in exile know nothing about. We have seen also how building is the great uh, point of the ministry of Haggai, not vision, not revelation, not understanding, not even returning. God's great emphasis to the prophet Haggai is that he is interested in building, in the actual, actual building of the house. God says that he will take pleasure and be glorified, not in vision, not in understanding, and not even returning to the land, but in actually building stone upon stone until the house is completed. We have learnt, I believe, much too from some of the words that Haggai uses, <clears throat> the word he uses so much, consider, in other words, reflect deeply, and as you do so, you will understand something of what is, uh, what is happening in your circumstances in your life. Perhaps it will lead you to understand the cause and will bring you into a positive understanding of the divine objective and plan. And there are so many other things too. I believe that last uh, week we ended upon this um, uh, another aspect of Haggai's ministry, uh, the importance of God's word in the work of reconstruction and recovery. It is very, very important in days such as we live in when the majority of God's people take the Bible as God's word and yet live happily, for the most part, in contradiction to it, singing hymns about it, praying about it, studying its doctrines and themes, and yet perfectly happy to live out, not only corporately but personally in many cases, uh, a contradiction to what is in God's word. It is of tremendous importance to us to see that uh, the, uh, <clears throat> in the book of Haggai, it was simple, direct response to God's word that started the, the actual recommencement of the work which led finally to its completion uh, to begin.
So I think we that's as far as we got last week. Now I want to add two more notes to, to that. We should also mark, when looking at the key to this book of Haggai and his message, we should also mark Haggai's emphasis on working. I think that you've only had to read through once this little book to see that one of the emphases of his ministry is work. Be strong and work. Adeline Campbell says this, Do the Lord's work in his way, at his time, by his spirit, and to his glory. There is such a need, having seen what the Lord wants, having understood that he wants to get on with the building of the stones together into a house, there is a tremendous need to get on with the work in utter dependence upon the Lord. It is that spirit that the Lord looks for. He is not waiting for spectators. He is not waiting for passengers. Those that are, are, are going to make dependence on him an excuse for spiritual lethargy and irresponsibility. Haggai's great word is be strong and work, for I am with you. In other words, the key to this work of, of building is in fact the Lord's presence. That's the key to it. But you see, uh, the, the working is absolutely, um, uh, is absolutely necessary for the Lord to fulfill uh, his purpose. So <clears throat> Haggai, one of Haggai's great emphasis is working. Now we must also watch what kind of material we are putting into the building. Now there are one or two things that we could look at this evening in connection with this. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and um, verse 12, we read this. If any man buildeth on the foundation gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work shall be made manifest, and so on. Now, what I want you to note is this, that this passage, which is nearly always taken as personal life, what you're putting into your own Christian life, is, is not what Paul primarily meant. If you read the context, you will see quite clearly that it's the kind of material that's going into the construction of the house, of the church. You read through, you'll find it at the, in the first part of chapter 3 when um, Paul speaks of his coming with Apollos, how one plants and the other waters and so on, and then he goes on, verse 9, ye are God, we, we are God's fellow workers, ye are God's husbandry, God's building, ye, plural, ye are God's building. Then he goes on, now be very careful what kind of material you're putting into the construction of the building. And there are these different kinds of material. There is gold, silver, and precious stone, there's wood, hay, and stubble. You see, the cross and the spirit are the only guarantee 
that you and I are contributing gold, silver, and precious stone to the construction of God's house. What are you putting in? It may be that your work is in the kitchen. It may be that your work is a very material kind of work. But in actual fact, from the attitude you have to the Lord, the way you do it, the fellowship with which you, you, you um, fulfill your ministry, however humble and mundane it is, some kind of material is going into the spiritual construction of God's house, of his temple. And this, I believe, is very, very important indeed. <clears throat> we understand that in this question of working, we can be putting into the construction of God's house wood, hay, and stubble. That which, in the end, the great shaking will eliminate. Every man's work. What does it mean, every man's work? Does it mean it's not talking of God's work just in us, but what we are putting into one another, how we are building up each other. That word in 1 Corinthians 14 that is so amazing, let all things be done unto edifying. What a shame that word edifying has been used because it means that most people completely gloss over it. Let all things be done unto building up. The same thought, the same, ye are God's building. You see, what kind of material are you putting into God's building? Let everything be done unto building up. But do watch the material you're putting into the house. Watch the material that you're putting into the construction of this temple of God. That, I believe, is very important that we should note. Then there are many functions and gifts for the work. Again, if you look in Ephesians um, 4... <coughs> you will find all the different functions that are given us for this work. 4, verse 11 and 12. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now what for? For the perfecting of the saints, under the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto. Now all these gifts and functions are given for one thing, building. Building. If a man is an evangelist, the objective in his evangelism is building up, getting material together for the, for the building. If a man is a pastor, his job is to form and keep and, and develop the material. If a man's a teacher, his job is something of the same kind. You see, all these different gifts, these what we call main gifts in the body, apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, they're all, they all have one objective, building. That's most important. Then if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, that very, very well-known chapter in the letter, of course, again, you have a whole lot more gifts and functions as well as in Romans 12, and they are all for the building up of the body. That's why in chapter 14 of Corinthians, forgetting the chapter divisions and the verse divisions, when you go straight on, Paul was saying, now look, there's all these gifts in the body. He's not, he's not exhausted the list. He's just gone through a, a, a sort of uh, uh, just a number of examples 
uh, now uh, you can see that by uh, looking at Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, you will find some of them are not here. He's not exhausted the list by any means. He's just given a certain number, and now he says, the whole point is this, it's all, let all things be done unto building. If you've got to decide between prophesying and tongues, well, let the key, the, the standard by which you judge everything, be this. What is building up the saints? What is building up the, the church? You see? So this question of building is, in fact, uh, not only the key to the book of Haggai, but you will discover that it has tremendous amount for us. It opens up a tremendous amount of the New Testament to us. You see, so many people have got an idea that a convocation, uh, a convention, is for the building up of God's people. But an evangelistic campaign, that's nothing to do with it at all. Very poor indeed, an evangelistic campaign. You know, there's those poor men evangelists, the most despised amongst God's people by those who often uh, have seen the most. But you see, the whole point is this. They have both the, should have the same objective. A convention truly is for the building up of God's people, but so is an evangelist, you see. They're both necessary. How is, how is the teacher uh, of God's word to teach those unless they are brought in and saved? How can they be saved unless a man is equipped and sent and qualified by the Holy Spirit to bring them in, that they may be saved and, 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 and brought in to be shepherded and taught and built up in Christ? All these things are for the building up of the body. It's important to remember that all the gifts and functions are necessary in this work of building. It may seem a very small gift. You take the list in 1 Corinthians 12, you come across things like helps and other things that we often point out. It may seem to us, well, that's a very small gift indeed, but it's necessary to the building up. The very, the very, the very word is interesting. Helps. Helps what for? Helps in the building up. It may only be a little small ministry, but they may provide a dynamic and vital link between two big ministries. A help. So we can say all kinds of things, but all these gifts and functions are necessary. Let me put it this way. Every one of us is necessary in the building up of God's church. Every one of us. For every one of us has one gift, even if we don't know what it is. We've got something of the Lord that should be being contributed uh, to the building up of God's children into the head. And then again, of course, do we have to say this, that the operation and contribution of these various functions of, is vital. Uh, if you look in Ephesians 4 and verse 16, it, um, I wonder what Haggai would have felt in his day if under Zerubbabel's leadership only Zerubbabel and Joshua had been doing the building work. They wouldn't have got very far. It took them four years to actually build the house, whereas it took Solomon seven years. There's a most remarkable fact, and no one has yet been able to discover exactly how they did it in so short a time, except that it is probable that the foundation stones were already there, which must have taken a long time getting into place, since some of them were the size of this room. 
four years it took them, but Joshua and Zerubbabel couldn't have done it. They would have done 60 years and still it wouldn't have been completed if it had been left to them. No, every single person in the remnant had got some part to play. Even the wives, if all they did was stay at home and cook a good meal for the husbands, give them a few sort of uh, more calories to carry on with the work, they were doing their part in the building up of the house. That's all. If some of them looked after the children so the men could get on with the job, that was their job. It was part of the thing. God looked upon it as much as, as a ministry, as much as a, as a function in this building of God's house as anything else. You see, the whole point is everyone has a part to play. And it is tremendously important that everyone see their place and do what they're intended to do. So tragedy when brothers become sisters and sisters become brothers. So tragedy when an evangelist tries to be a teacher and a teacher tries to become an evangelist. All these things are mistakes. And if the devil can't stop us from contributing, then what he does is try to get us all into the wrong place, trying to do one another's job, with the resulting confusion and weakness. Because, you see, one of the interesting words that comes out in this whole question of building and function and gift and so on is this, let all things be done, what? In order. That doesn't mean that we should all be stiffly formal as some people think. No, it doesn't mean let all things be done in order. Let everyone keep to their own function. That's all. Let there be an order in your home. Let there be an order in your business life. Let there be an order in your own life. Let there be an order in the church life. Let everything be in order. That's all. Let all things be done decently and in order. Not inordinately. Not somehow or other indecently. You see? Let there be a dignity about let there be something that commends the Lord, something which manifestly reveals the beauty of the Lord, our God, upon us all. You see, here, it's all, it's all here. And of course, I'm tempted really to sort of run through some scriptures. In Ephesians 4, verse 16, it says so clearly, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth through that which every joint supplieth. Now we'll go on. According to the working in due measure of each several part. So every joint supplies something, and it's according to the working in due measure of each several part. The Lord couldn't make it clearer that every small digit in the body has got some place, some point. Now come back to Haggai. The whole point is this. If all the people who felt they were in the background, if all the people who felt they weren't in the public glare, had stopped working, the work would have fallen to pieces within a fortnight. See? If people had just said, well, look here, dear, I can't bear you to be out another day. I'm just not going to do anything more. You either stay at home or it's no more going to be done. The house would have finished before long. If, if, if everything had become inverted, if there'd been a, a complete collapse, you see, well, in the end, what would have happened? You would have just had Joshua and Zerubbabel and a few of the faithful leaders just trying to struggle through with the building of the house. And it would have been too much for them. They would have been dead and buried before ever the house was, was completed. And the end would have been not only disaster uh, in, in, a, in a general way, but disaster in a personal way for everyone who had not contributed. 
So that, this is why in the New Testament you get so much along this line and I feel it would be good if we just looked at very swiftly at one or two scriptures that may help, but they've all got connection with this work of building, this building work. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Paul has to even tell Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in thee. Now isn't that an interesting word? The word is kindle back into flame. Now that shows that you can have a gift from heaven which can become latent. Now do you know there are many people sitting in this room tonight who are waiting for some vision from heaven or some sudden and amazing something or other to happen so that before they start to minister. My dear friend, you'll be here in 30, 40, 50 years' time when I'm dead and buried, still waiting for the heavens to open for you to see your gift. <laughs> the whole point is this. By the Holy Spirit, there's a gift in you. If you don't stir it up, it never will be fulfilled. No good waiting for the Lord to give you a good kick or a, a sign of jerk, a spiritual jerk, out of your seat. No, it won't happen that way. You've got to stir up. Now, it, now, you see, this is interesting. Paul didn't say Timothy. Timothy, Timothy, ask the Lord to stir up the gift that is in thee. That's how many of us would have put it. No, no. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you must kindle back into flame the gift that is in you. Now, just wait. Just look again at 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Neglect not the gift. Now, I wonder what happened. Did Paul originally write Timothy and say, look here, I hear that something's happening, Timothy. You've gone under a cloud. You're neglecting this gift that's in you. He says, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy. And so on, see? Be diligent. Neglect. Did you know many of us are neglecting? So later on, Paul writes against Timothy and says, stir up this gift that is in you. Look at 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 5, and the last part. Fulfill thy ministry. Stir up, neglect not the gift that is in thee. Stir up the gift that is in thee. Fulfill thy ministry. You see? It's very interesting, isn't it? Then look at Colossians um, for Paul was always having to tell people mind you I don't know what Paul would have done in this company if he'd written a letter to the saints at Richmond I think the whole lot would have been at the bottom with fulfilling their ministries take heed to stir it up and all the rest of it you see chapter 4 verse 17 say to Archippus take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfill it now it seems to me perfectly apparent that you can have a gift inside of you and it can com completely go to sleep it is clear from Scripture itself that there has got to be the continual, determined stirring into flame of the gift that's in us, however small. How quickly we become weary, how quickly we become despondent, how quickly we give up. You see, this is really what uh, Paul is trying to say to us. Of course, the greatest way of building is love. 1 Corinthians 13, after 1 Corinthians 12 and before 1 Corinthians 14, tells us very clearly that the supreme way of building up the church is love. We don't actually need so much evangelists and pastors and teachers and all the rest. What we need is love. That's the supreme thing. If we all love one another, there'll be a building up. The other things are necessary. But that, if we've got to choose, is the most important way of all. Make love, says Paul, your aim. 
For he said, I, I will show you the most excellent way of all. And that's why it says in Ephesians 4, and I think verse 16, the last part, that the building up of itself in love, you see? Now, my dear friends, if we love each other, we shall build each other up. A lot of this that's tearing down and destructive will have gone when there's a true and genuine love for the saints. And then one other word in connection with this uh, working that Haggai emphasizes in his ministry it is um, in the book of Haggai, and ch chapter 1 and verse 8. Could we underline it? Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. In other words, Haggai is saying to them, in spite of the difficulty and hardship, gather the materials together for the building of my house. Now, you know, this has something for us. I don't think we're stretching a point. In the light of the New Testament, how you and I need to go out and gather those that will, by the grace of God alone, become the material for God's house. It is most interesting. God's house doesn't just, just get built like that. People have got to go out up into the mountain. Now, that, that means difficulty. It means hardship. You see, some people seem to think, from what I gather, the, uh, I myself uh, am persuaded towards Calvinism, but I cannot understand that hyper-Calvinism which expects fully hewn stones and material to drop out of heaven. You have to go out. It's as if Haggai was saying, now, my dear friends, if you'll only put your hearts right and so on, the stones will appear. They'll just be there. Waiting, that's all. All you have to do is just sort of shift them together. The wood will be there, miraculously. No, not so. Go up, he says, into the mountain, not into the valley. Not into where it's easy, but go up into the, into the hill country of Judah and get the wood. That means difficulty. They didn't have the transport nor the means that, that we have today. There was a lot of difficulty involved <laughs> in this for these people who evidently had settled down to a more comfortable life. And I believe there's a message there for you and I. We should be all the time watchful, on the alert, for those who, by the grace of God, shall become material in the, for, for the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the temple of God. So, really, when we finish this, um, that we've been saying about the key and message of this book of Haggai, I think we ought finally to underline that the Lord reveals himself in this book 14 times as the Lord of hosts. And this title is a title that is used always of the Lord in regard to his strength and his might. It really means the Lord of the armies of heaven. He is at the head of a tremendous army, a tremendous, a tremendous armed force. And Haggai, to the point of, of over-repetition, again and again reminds us it is the Lord of hosts who's in charge of this work. It is the Lord of hosts who's going to initiate it and is going to stir us up to do it and is going to enable us in the end to fulfill 
the, the, our, our ministry and complete the house. It is the Lord of hosts. And I believe that that is perhaps one of the most remarkable uh, evidences for the grace of God in this little book of Haggai. Because you see, the Lord will lead us in spite of the tremendous conflict we're in and the terrible foe that is against us, all the array of satanic armed might and the overwhelming odds which we face, the Lord of hosts is in charge of this work and he himself will lead the armies of heaven to absolute and final victory. He cannot fail. Now, to me, that's the most comforting word of all. And later on, just when uh, um, Haggai had finished the ministry that we have uh, of his, Zechariah takes it up and says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's the point. The Lord of hosts is in this battle. This is his work. And he is going to bring it to completion. Well, now, can we turn to the outline of this book? If you would like to keep the, your Bible open at this book of Haggai. The outline of Haggai is quite simple. It follows the dating of the various portions. Haggai 1, verse 1. Haggai 2, verse 1. And then 2, verse 10 and to verse 20. So you will see that there is a simple four-fold division. I have put that division there on the board, which you can see. The first is the challenge of the Lord to rebuild the house of God. The second is the encouragement of the Lord to continue in the work of rebuilding. The third is the appeal of the Lord for further reflection in the work of rebuilding, and lastly, the promise of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the builder of the house. Now, I don't know how far we shall get this evening, if the Lord intends us to finish, but we will embark upon uh, a little more intensive look at these um, portions, these divisions. First of all, the challenge of the Lord to rebuild his house. Haggai chapter 1 from verse 1 to 15, the whole chapter. This first message was given, if you note, in verse 1. It was given on the first of the sixth month of the second year of Darius. Now, from this we learn, from verse 15, that three and a half weeks later, the work started. I don't know why it took the people three and a half weeks for God's word through Haggai to sink in. But the point is this, that Haggai comes to them on the first day of the sixth month, month of the second year of Darius and speaks to them. And then, I believe, on the 24th day of the, of the sixth month, that is three and a half weeks later, the people start to rebuild the house of the Lord. It was addressed to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now this is very interesting. If you look at verse um, 2, um, sorry, verse 1, 
the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Now the first message was not given to all, it was in fact given to the two leaders. That's very interesting. And from this we learn something. You see, God in this first message, this challenge to rebuild the house, is addressing himself to the responsible people, the responsible ones. Um, and I believe this is a most sobering thought to realize that it is always the responsible ones who are the determining factor in any given situation in God's sight. It's a terribly sobering thought. It is not that poor little soul who doesn't know whether she's coming or going and is all over the place and people think, oh dear, how can the Lord bless us because of so? It's not so at all. Nor is it so-and-so or so-and-so who's always doing this and then doing that and the other. No, it's the responsible people that are the determining factor in the end. It is very, very interesting that God speaks to those who are the leaders amongst God's people, those who are really responsible. That finds us out, you know, because um, it's a very, very great responsibility indeed to have seen something and to be involved in the work of the Lord. And in this first section, the Lord reveals what is the heart of his purpose in Haggai's day, which is the rebuilding of the temple. And he challenges them to get on with it in verse 8. That's the key to this first section. Go up into the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and will be glorified. Now we can divide this um, first uh, section of the book of Haggai into three. And the first section is the exposure of the real cause for the stoppage in rebuilding. Now let's take a look at this. First of all, you'll notice in verse 2 that it, that it is the Lord of hosts who speaks here and throughout this prophecy. That's the first thing that we want to know. It is the Lord who is in charge of the armies of heaven. There can be no excuse, in other words. It's no good pleading your weakness. No good in pleading that uh, the circumstances are impossible. It is the Lord of hosts who addresses the people here. So, you see, the ground is cut from under our feet. This evil heart of unbelief in God's people that's all the time running for shelter into excuses. See? Oh, I'm so weak. I'm so unworthy. Oh, my dear friend, what rubbish all that is. I can't do it. If you knew my circumstances, my dear friend, the Lord of hosts is with us. It is your evil heart of unbelief that cuts you off from the power of the Lord. Paul said, I have learnt the secret, both how to abound and how to be abased. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you not think that Paul must have felt sometimes that the odds against him were overwhelmingly in favour of Satan? Don't you think when everyone deserted him that he must have felt, what's the point in going on? You see? No, the point is this. Who is speaking? It is the Lord of hosts. Now, you haven't got an excuse. 
If you've seen what God's purpose is and you've come back, stop whining about the difficulty. Stop whining about the hardship of the way. My dear friends, it might be your cause. It might be you might be partly the reason for it. It certainly was in, in Haggai's day. A lot of that which they were suffering, they were just reaping what they'd sown. Now the whole point is the Lord of hosts is here. And his point is that this mountain shall become a plain in front of the Israel, as he said through Zechariah the prophet. This is a great mountain, yes, of course it is, but I'm the Lord of hosts. I can move it. That's very important for us to understand. And the second thing is this, the excuse God's people are giving for not building, verse 2. See, this people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, my dear friends, you can see very clearly it's just mere spiritual jargon. It's a cover. Now, most of us, somehow or other, always, when there's an underlying cause and we don't want to bring it up to the service, we hide in good spiritual phraseology uh, that uh, constitutes an excuse. Well, we say, you know, so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Here was a jolly good one. It's not the Lord's time to build the house, you see. And, of course, all of them comforted one another because they all fell, they were all in the same boat. Oh, they said, it's not the Lord's time to build the house. So everyone was very, very happy about this. And they used to say to each other, it became almost a common little phrase, it's not the Lord's time, don't worry about it. Rest, rest, rest. It's not the Lord's time. But in fact, it was a cover. And have you, do note the force, the indig indignation in this. The Lord doesn't say, my people. No, he says, this people. There's an indignation in that. It's almost a term of, of despising. This people say. Then you follow on. I'm sure that there were a multitude of seemingly legitimate excuses, uh, reasons for this excuse. And now, do listen very carefully, because I think you'll be surprised. I've discovered some very good, legitimate reasons for their excuse. The first was, the sixth month was harvest time. And everyone must have been out in the fields. So I'm quite sure when they heard Haggai saying, they thought, now this is absolutely the worst time of all. I mean, if he had spoken another time, it would have been, but it's harvest time. See, they were so bothered about their own business and everything else, surely they would have been very upset there. Harvest time's one thing. Secondly, they pleaded bad circumstances. We've had a terrible time in the past few years. Absolutely terrible. Awfully sorry we can't help you on this. Awfully sorry we can't do this. I'm sorry, sorry. We can't build the Lord's house, just but we've got terrible circumstances. I mean, if the Lord wants us to build the house, let him change our circumstances. Then we'll get on with the job. That's a very big point there. Second, thirdly, there was official opposition. The Samaritans had officially opposed the building and had, in fact, brought it to a, uh, a stop. And so everyone said, well, we can't do it. You've got to be subjects, haven't you, to sort of official powers. I mean, the king, they, they, the Samaritans appealed to the Persian king, and he said, stop. So, I mean, after all, I mean, uh, you've got to be uh, sort of in subjection sort of thing to the higher powers and so on. And then the most classic one of all, which I do hope goes like a shaft into many hearts in this room, is the fact that the people felt that the 70 years of captivity mentioned by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25 verse 11 and 12 had not in fact 
been finished. You see, they were counting from 586. What a wonderful excuse. They worked it out. Well, now here we are in 520. Show me it's only 50 years. Got another 20 years to go. So there's no more building allowed. So they've got a per they've not only got bad circumstances, they've not only got um, a, a harvest, which obviously they felt the law would want them to get in, and I can imagine them arguing on that line, but they also had a jolly good scriptural basis for their objection. So you can hear them saying, my dear fellow, it's in the scripture. Jeremiah said 70 years. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, and, of course, the 70 years captivity is not up. He said it would be rebuilt in 70 years' time. In fact, it began in 606. That's where you and I have to learn that we have to be spiritually sensitive. It began with the first sacking of Jerusalem, the 70 years' captivity when the first kings were taken away into exile. However, that's by the way. Now Haggai comes in verse 3 and verse 4 with an exposure of the real cause. First, he points out their comfortable, habitable, panelled houses. You see that? In your authorised version, <coughs> sealed means panelled. And it doesn't just mean nice wooden ceiling, but it means ornamented. The idea was that the, the walls and the, and, the, and the ceilings were ornamented very nicely. Now, in Judah, stone was cheap, but wood was a luxury. So, you see, there's a particular sting in this. You see, you, says the Lord, dwell in your sealed houses, whilst my house lieth waste. They had evidently gone to the trouble of going up into the hill country to get the wood for their own homes. That's the point. So when later Haggai says to them, go up into the mountain and bring wood and build my house, and I will, be, uh, I will take pleasure in it and be glorified. You see what's happened? There's the exposure of the real cause. They are very comfortable in their own homes, spending a lot of time in their own homes. Now, the second thing is, of course... Uh, that uh, the, the um, Lord says, my house, the Lord's ruined and uncared for house. There's the exposure of the real cause for the stoppage. The real reason was that the people cared more for their own things than they cared for the things of the Lord. Now, you know, it comes out in all kinds of little ways. It, in fact, comes out in the excuses we make. Our attitude is only too clearly and evidently betrayed by what we say. Our attitude to things, you see. These folk had left their first love. That's the point. And now they cared more for their families, more for their own homes, more for their own houses, more for their own businesses than for the things of the Lord. So, in the second uh, section here, the appeal to consider their ways and rebuild the house from verse 5 to verse 11. You see, in this section, after Haggai has exposed the real cause for the stoppage in rebuilding, their, their greater concern and care for themselves than for the Lord, now he goes on. He appeals to them to consider their ways. 
things, and after they've considered them, to, to build the house of the Lord. Now the point is this, if you look at verse 6, verse 9, 10, and 11, you will see that the remnant are having a terrible time. They're having a terrible time. There is little return or satisfaction from anything that they do. They're doing enough. If you read through verse 6, verse 9, 10, 11, you'll see they're doing an awful lot. In fact, they're employing all their energy and time upon these things, but they're getting nothing back. They're, in fact, having a terrible time. Now, will you note that um, their terrible time covers everything? Now, look, just mark this very carefully. I've underlined them. So, eat, drink, clothe, earn. That covers the whole of life. Sowing, everything depends upon the sowing of a harvest, doesn't it? Sowing, eating, drinking, clothing, and earning. Covers the whole of life. Every part of their life is, is blighted. Then go on in verse um, 9, 10, and 11. Heaven and earth, men and cattle. Uh, even more interesting, the three words used, the three commodities, grain, new wine, and oil. Now these three were the basic necessities for life. Grain, out of which they made all their food, more or less. New wine, which was their sole drink, their sole source of drink and oil from which they got their light, from which they cooked, and much else. These three things literally were the vital commodities of their life. And the Lord says he's blighted all these things. So you can see they're having a very tough time. Yet, they've devoted their energy and time to their families, their houses, and their businesses. They've got much and, and yet little. They're living in panelled homes and yet they're having a terrible time. When they should be happy and joyful and satisfied, instead they're unhappy and dissatisfied and weary. Evidently, the people did not associate their hard time with their attitude to God's house. And thus we have the appeal to consider you see, Haggai comes to them and says, look here, these bad circumstances you're pleading, you say you can't do the Lord's work because of your bad circumstances, because of this and because of that and because of that. But reflect. Have you ever considered that your bad circumstances may be a direct result of your attitude to the Lord and his house? That's the point. Now you see, Haggai says, if they will reflect deeply, they will be led through the effects to the cause. Trouble with most of us is that we won't reflect. When something happens to us, when things are tough or difficult and so on, we, we just don't reflect. We, we have a kind of little safety mechanism that, that um, avoids any possibly, possibility that this tough time or so on could be that there is something wrong. Now, of course, not all tough times uh, or, or periods of famine even uh, are due to sinfulness or to a wrong attitude. But the point is, sometimes they are. In this case, with Haggai's, the folk in Haggai's day, it most certainly was. And the point is, the point of the matter is this. The people are now denying the very principle inherent within their return. 
it would have been more honest for them to have remained in the exile, remained in captivity. There they would have seen the Lord, they would have been blessed by the Lord, and much else would have happened, you see? But the point is that in their returning, they brought themselves into the circumference of the discipline of God because they have brought themselves into the heart of God's purpose. That's the point. Now, you see, they came back with a first love, but they've lost it. And now they're denying the very principle upon which they returned, the glory of God, the purpose of God, and the dwelling place of God. These were the three great things that constituted the principle of their return. So the Lord appeals to them as a result of such reflection to get on with the rebuilding. He says, consider how you're faring. Go up into the mountain and bring wood and, and build the house. And this is the interesting point. The Lord says, I will take pleasure in it and be glorified. The inference is that in his pleasure and in his glory, all true blessing and honor and satisfaction and increase for us lies. Isn't that interesting? You can be in the exile and not very much bother about his pleasure or his glory. And you can get a lot of blessings, a lot of experiences, and now and again quite a lot of understanding. But if you come back to the promised land, then the Lord's very jealous over this. Very jealous indeed. It's his pleasure and his glory and you will find the fullness of your pleasure and the brightness of your glory in his pleasure and glory. So we come to the last section in this, the response to the Lord's challenge, obedience. This is a very wonderful section from verse 12 to verse 15. You see the response? utter obedience, the utter obedience of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant. It is interesting how the order in which they're put. Rarely does it seem that God's people obey when their leaders don't. Zerubbabel obeyed the, vo the voice of the Lord, the word of God, and Joshua and the people. Now, there are two very interesting phrases here that I think we should underline. The first, they're both in verse 12. The first is this. The people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Have you noticed it? The voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai. The voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai. Most interesting. Well, I only leave that for you to go away and think about. The voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai. <coughs> and then again... Um, in the same verse, uh, the people did fear before the Lord. You know, that reveals a sensitivity to the Lord, which is so often lacking amongst us. A sensitiveness to the Lord, to his word, to his presence, to, to, to the course that he is seeking to, to bring us into. Very, very important. In this section, I believe we see the vital importance of our attitude to God's word. <coughs> what would have happened, may I ask you, what would have happened if they had ignored the word of the Lord or evaded the word of the Lord or contradicted the word of the Lord? Now, these three things are different. 
You can ignore the word of the Lord. In other words, you can listen there and your mind just shut like a pigeonhole. You know, all shut there, <laughs> shut and bolted and barred. You're sitting there like that. I'm not going to take this in. Ignoring it. I often see it on Sunday morning all the time. People who are absolutely intent on ignoring anything that may be said. They may feel it's the infirmity of the preacher, I don't know. They may feel that perhaps it's something else or something else. But anyway, they're going to ignore whatever's being said. Or you can evade it. Now, this is the way you evade it. You listen to it all, just wonderful word, wonderful word, and then you go home and have a nice lunch and forget all about it. You've evaded it. And you've evaded it by offering to your conscience a sop. You see, wonderful word, the Lord was with us this morning, marvellous. And then you forget about it. See, You very conveniently evaded it by dulling your conscience. Or you can contradict it by simply saying, I don't think that was the word of the Lord. Now, if these, these folk had in fact taken any of those three courses, what would have been the result? Someone could easily have argued, you know, about the 70 years captivity. They could have had a first-class row with Haggai on this and said, but Haggai, the whole point is this, it begins from 586. After all, they might have said that Haggai was just trying to read into scripture something when he said it began with six, in 600. There's nothing to say that it did. He might have said, you're just being arbitrary. Yeah? Fitting it into your scheme of things. <coughs> but you see, the people were sensitive to the Lord, and this is the point. Their ear was open to the voice of the Lord beyond the words of Haggai the prophet. That's the point. You see, they were sensitive not to the infirmity of the man. And there is an infirmity in, in Haggai. I mean, he's, we've got to face it. His, his style is dull. Rep repetitive to a degree. I mean, the point is, they didn't stop short at the man's infirmities. They went beyond into the voice of the Lord who was speaking in and through him. Now, here is the interesting thing. Im the immediate response of the Lord to the people's obedience. Verse 13, he says immediately, I am with you. As soon as they obeyed the voice of the Lord and feared before him, he says, I am with you. Now here it is. Divine ability is given to the people to start the work. As soon as the Lord says, I am with you, he stirs up the spirit, first of Zerubbabel, then of Joshua, then of the people, and they came and did work on the house of the Lord their God. Now it's very important to recognize the order. The Lord's word, the people's obedience, the Lord's immediate response and enabling. You see? That's just it. I don't know why so often we wait for something dramatic to happen. The Lord's word, the people immediately with one heart were obedient leaders people obedient to the word of the Lord and the result, the Lord immediately says, I'm with you. It's as if, I may say almost irreverently, the Lord was waiting uh, waiting, straining as it were, on the touchline waiting to be off. And as soon as there was an obedience to his word, the Lord says, I'm with you. And he does the rest. It is very interesting, isn't it? Because you see, you often get this kind of talk, you know, um, I don't feel the time's come. We must wait for a burden to develop suddenly in us all and then we'll do it. You see, the whole point is this. It's the same, the same idea that was prevalent in Haggai's day. Waiting for something to drop on us out of heaven. We have God's word. 
When God's word comes to us, we must immediately test it that it is God's word, then obey it implicitly and explicitly, fully. And immediately we shall find the Lord is there, and he's not only there, he stirs us up. You see, some people have got the wrong end of the stick. They're waiting for the Lord to stir up everything without being obedient to the word of the Lord. The order is most important. The word of the Lord, the obedience of the people, the stirring up. Now listen, there may be one or two of you, not even the Lord's in this room, and you're waiting for something to drop out of you from heaven. My dear friend, it will never come. God's word is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The moment you obey that word, the Lord says, I am with you. In exactly the same way that some of you are waiting for something to happen before you function in the church. You feel all something new has got to happen to you and all this. My dear friend, God has his word. God has it. Just take his word. Take his word. And immediately you take it in true faith. Not just re reason, but faith. God says, I am with you. And he will enable you from that point. You see? It's most important that you and I see this. Otherwise, the enemy paralyzes us, not for one year, not for two years, for decades. Just keeps us paralyzed, waiting, 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 waiting for some strange stirring of the water so that we can all jump into it. The point is this, we shall be well and truly paralyzed then before we can ever get into the water. The whole thing is God has a word. We've got to respond to it. As soon as we respond, the Lord is there. This work is very near to God's heart and he'll be there in an instant if you and I will only respond to him. God's word was enough for the people in Haggai's day. Where there is active obedience to God's word in faith, the Lord is there and the presence of the Lord is the key to this rebuilding work. Not by might, nor by power, but by might spirit. So the work recommences, verse 15, and it is probable that this recommencement here, it was the clearing of the site and the foundation, and a gathering and preparing of the materials, as we see in verse 8, go up into the mountain. Now you see, in those days it would have taken them quite some weeks to go up into the mountains, hew down enough wood to build a house of this size, get it back to the site, and then prepare it. There's a, quite a lot of work in that. And it is very probable that here uh, we have uh, these, um, uh, th th this reference to the work being done on the Lord's house is not the actual building, but the work of preparation. Why do I say that? Because you see in chapter 2 and verse 18, uh, we're told that um, three months later, the actual, actual work commenced. So it seems clear that there was three months uh, of preparation, clearing up, sizing up, preparation of getting and uh, preparation of materials, and then the actual building probably began three months later. <clears throat> now, I think we just have time to take this uh, second section, um, which is the first half of chapter 2. Uh, we have entitled this, The Encouragement of the Lord to Continue in the Work of Rebuilding. Now, one or two points about it. 
this message was given seven weeks after the first message. You see that in chapter 2, verse 1, comparing it with chapter 1, verse 1. And it was given four weeks after the work commenced, in verse 15. So it's very interesting. Seven weeks after the first message and four weeks after the work had actually started. Now, if you bear that in mind, it will help you in your understanding. You see, this was the encouragement of the Lord to continue in the work of rebuild. They'd started. One whole month had gone. But certain things had happened. Now, this is very interesting. It's possible that the work was already slowing down. Uh, it's very possible that the work was actually uh, slowing down due to general despondency. You, you can see it in... Uh, I don't know why despondency seems to be the great snare uh, in recovery, recovery work. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3, here you've got, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes as nothing? Well, that speaks of despondency, doesn't it? See? The Lord says, I will take pleasure in this. I will be glorified. But they're all saying, oh dear, it's nothing. It's nothing. Well, don't you feel like that? Of course you do. I, I'm not so sure you think about yourself like that. But you see, you look at your brothers and sisters, you think, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. Really and truthfully, this building work is nothing. Some people are sick to death of the living stones. Of course, often we, we, we take it out on one another. Really and truthfully, if only we did but know it, we're sick to death of ourselves. But we take it out on one another. Some of us would feel that if we did that, we were committing mental suicide. So we just, we're sick to death, as we say, of one another. And we tend to, when we see all the breakdown, well, I feel like it, I could give you a whole host of instances where you just feel this recovery work, is it, is it really not nothing? Is it just, isn't it just a dream. When you see the way people contradict it, when you see the way people make their vain excuses, when you see the faithful little few who somehow or other just lay down their lives to the point almost of death, and in the end some will die, there's no doubt about that, before a few more years have gone, and others could just happily, selfishly, wrapped up in themselves and all their own things, quite happy for that little fool just to pull them through and labour for them and all the rest of it. Of course you feel, is it not as nothing? Oh, you think, think of that great church in the beginning of the New Testament, how marvellous it was. Is this not as nothing compared with that? And so you become despondent. You see, and don't you get that not only from that verse, is it not as nothing in your eyes, but the, Lord word, the Lord's word, be strong and work. Why did the Lord say that? Surely because they were just beginning to, to, to fade out. Now there are some other things that I've discovered that I feel are very, very interesting. It's remarkable how the Lord times his messages. And the, there is a reason why the Holy Spirit has kept the dates in this book. You see, it, here is the most wonderful thing. Four weeks after the building had started, Haggai brings this second message from the Lord. But this is the point. He brought it on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
If you, you need to look it up now, but if you want to make a note of it, do. In Leviticus, chapter 23, from verse 34 to 36, you will discover that in this very month, these very days, the Feast of Tabernacles was to be kept. And furthermore, from Ezra 3 and verse 4, you will discover that this remnant were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. They were keeping the feast, although they hadn't got the house. Isn't it interesting? And the last day was this day here, the 21st day of the seventh month, and it was the great day. The great day. It was the day, in fact, when the Lord Jesus stood up, you know, and said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me on the great day, the eighth day, the great day of the feast. Same day. Now Haggai stands up on this day when all the people were gathered together in uh, festivity and thanksgiving for what was in fact a very poor harvest and um, Haggai stands up to bring this message. Now here is the why the timing of the Lord's message is so remarkable. You see that year, in fact those few previous years, the harvest had been poor. You've only got to read uh, the book of Haggai to see what the Lord had done to the harvests. So you can imagine the general despondency. Everyone was there supposed to be praising the Lord for the, for the harvest when in fact they hadn't got one. So I can just imagine it, rather like a Sunday morning sometimes, when a lot of people come with gritted teeth uh, to praise the Lord. See. Uh, the, the, the point is that they didn't feel like thanking the Lord or praising the Lord. The, the work of rebuilding had continued for four weeks only, and there was very little to show, very, very little to show indeed. Probably most of the men were up in the hill country anyway, or had been, and uh, just got the wood back and probably were absolutely flagged out. And uh, the worst thing of all, and this is rather amusing in one way, were the old people. It was the old people that were the despondent. The young people had a bit more zeal, but it was the old people who remembered the former house who kept on and on and on about, it's nothing, it's nothing. You know how people do. The good old days when we were young, the marvellous house that we had made, it's nothing. And they just got the young people down altogether. So these were the causes for the general despondency. The older ones were particularly discouraging. And um, this message is addressed to all, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the whole people. We see that from verse 2 of chapter 2. Now, very, very swiftly, this, um, these verses from uh, 1 to verse 9 are divided into two. And the first we find in from first section from verse 2 to verse 5, and I've entitled it, The Covenanted Presence of the Lord the key to encouragement and perseverance. Now, here it is. Here the Lord comes forward to Haggai, and he gives the most wonderful encouragement to his people in the work, in verse 4 and verse 5. Listen, three things. First, his presence. I am with you. Secondly, the might of heaven, the Lord of hosts. I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. And thirdly, uh, the covenant is still standing according to the word that I covenanted with you in Egypt. My spirit remaineth among you. Now, isn't that a wonderful word of encouragement, just when the people felt like giving up altogether? 
they'd begun to see that all the blight and trouble in their circumstances was due to the fact that they hadn't got a right attitude to God's house. They were denying the very principle of their being. And this may be the reason why a lot of us are suffering hardship in one way or another. It may be. You, you and I have got to ask the Lord about these things. Just discover whether the Lord is giving us honour, whether he's in, in giving us increase, whether he's truly satisfying us. If not, is it because somewhere or other we're denying the very principle of our, of our being together? Now the people have started the work. And then for four weeks it's gone on, but now they're despondent again. What with the older ones groaning about what it used to be and what it is not now, and the, the little that there is to show for it, and the poor harvest, and the hard work, and all the rest of it. Now the Lord says, I'm the Lord of hosts. And he says, according to the word I covenanted with you in Egypt. Now the Lord does not give a new promise, he renews an old one. And I think that's very wonderful. You see, this is the key to perseverance and overcoming of all difficulties and discouragements. The presence of the Lord according to his word and covenant. Now listen, haven't you and I got a covenant? Hasn't the Lord made a covenant with you and I? Listen to this. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. Isn't that a covenant? Listen to this. I am with you, go ye into all the world, and so on and so forth, and I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Isn't that a covenant? Listen to this. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't that a covenant? Listen to these other words. This is the covenant in my blood which is shed for you. This do in remembrance of me, as oft as ye drink it. And the Lord that I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine until I sit down with you in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that a covenant? There's a covenanted word. The Lord says, I am with you. My spirit abideth among you. You see? Are you discouraged? Do you feel the odds are against you? Oh, says the Lord, listen, I am with you, and I am the Lord of hosts, and I have made a covenant with you. I want to renew it. If through your sinful attitude, somehow or other, I've stood back, it's not because I've broken my covenant. I renew it now. Now, my dear friend, when you and I were saved, we came into a covenant relationship with God, and he will never break it. We may break our side, but he will never break his. You may fall away from the Lord. You may go into the far country, but as soon as he in grace brings you back, that covenant stands as it always has done. You're back in covenant relationship with the Lord. According to the word. Now, wouldn't it have been interesting, and some scholars have pointed this out, has a copyist made a mistake? Should it not have read according to the word that I promised you in Babylon? Or in the land? Why go back to Egypt? Because Egypt was the birth of the nation. You see, we can go right back to Pentecost. I will build my church. That's the covenant word of our Lord. 
It began, as it were, the realization of it began on the day of Pentecost. The Lord is still with us according to the word which he covenanted with us when he brought us out of Egypt. You see, when the Lord delivered a great multitude in that day, it was a deliverance greater than any deliverance from Egypt. And the word is still with us. The Lord has still sticking by his word. And all the promises of God, whatsoever they are, in Christ is the yea, and wherefore through him is the amen. You see? The covenanted word of the Lord. I believe that's one of the most encouraging things that could be said to these folk. The Lord is simply saying, my spirit is among you. Don't worry, I understand all these difficulties, but I'm with you, and I'm the Lord of hosts. And I'm still keeping my covenant with you. I, my spirit, abideth among you. And then the second um, section of this, and with this we shall finish this evening, from verse 6 to verse 9, is the coming realization of God's purpose and glory directly related to this rebuilding. Now, do look at this from verse 6 to verse 9 as we close, in verse 6 and verse 7, you have a great shaking of the nations foretold, out of which God's purpose will emerge fulfilled. So when we, you and I begin to see the great shaking of the nations, which in fact has gone on for a long time, but it's going to grow in intensity at the end, don't miss be afraid, because it is the very sign that that the purpose of God is going to emerge out of the shaking fulfilled. It's like the butterfly coming out of the chrysalis. It's just the contortions of an old society which is producing a new. Out of it is emerging something altogether new. I read one thing this week which has not left me. It's come back to me again and again. Only a little phrase. The nations, the unsaved nations, are the scaffolding around the kingdom. Now, isn't that a wonderful thought? I said again. The unsaved nations are the scaffolding around the kingdom of God. Isn't that a wonderful thought? See? They're being used to the construction of the kingdom. They're being used to the, to, the, to the bringing forth of the kingdom. Do you see what I mean? I would like to put it like this. The unsaved nations are the scaffolding of the house of God. They are being used as they were in, in Haggai's day. They were being used. Nebuchadnezzar, yes, but later on, Cyrus and then Darius, they're all being used like scaffolding around the house of God to complete God's purpose. This great shaking that's going to take place, the only thing that will be lost in it is what is not of God. And if there's a lot that's not of God in your life and mine, we shall lose. We shall be injured. We shall be harmed. Well, I, 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 next week, Lord willing, um, we shall finish with the last message of this book, which is a great promise that in that great shaking, not only will you not be harmed, but you will be made the signet ring of God. No greater promise than that. Not just that you will be uh, uh, kept from evil, but through it you will be brought to the very place God has chosen you for. Well, believe that. But um, the, the point in these two verses is that this great shaking of the kingdom is something out of which God's purpose is going to emerge fulfilled.
Now, Haggai encourages the people of God with all this, you see. What did he say to them in verse um, 9? He says, the glory of this house will exceed that of the, of the former because it will witness the finalizing and fulfilling of all God's word and purpose. Yes, maybe this house of Haggai's is not the same as Solomon's, but this is the point. The glory of this latter house will exceed that of the former because it will actually see the fulfillment of God's purpose in Christ. It will see the finalizing of everything. My friends, it was a marvelous thing, frankly. To be in the, in, there on the day of Pentecost, wouldn't any of you have given uh, anything to be there on the day of Pentecost? To actually see what happened on the day of Pentecost? To see in those first years of the early church? But you see how foolish you and I are. Because the latter glory of this house will exceed that of the former. It may not have the same proportions, it may not have the same significance, but it will be far more wonderful to see in days of failure and difficulty and overwhelming odds against the Lord, to see the top stone walk forth, no wonder. People will shout, grace, grace unto it. Don't you think that will be wonderful? I say it will be the most wonderful thing of all, in that the latter house will exceed, the glory of the latter house will exceed that of the former. How wonderful to be there when finally the Lord descends from heaven with a shout and with that great trump, the great trump of the archangel. How marvelous to actually be there when the house is completed. My dear friends, we're living in marvelous days, if in fact we're in the end days. More marvelous in the, than even the beginning. Because you see, God's grace is going to be manifested in an even greater way at the end than it was at the beginning. To complete a thing is harder than to begin. It will bring God out in all his full glory and grace to complete the house. Oh, dear brother and sister, you get into God's purpose. Let everything go, let everything go, because be assured of this, that if you and I are in the last days, what we have, we shall have to let go of if we're not prepared first to be done with it. There will come a day when it will all be taken from you, when you'll see it all in those last final closing years of this great age, hold the things that will happen. No wonder the Lord said to the people, oh, it's it better for you not to be there. But for those of us who know the Lord, well, what tremendous days have we been prepared for, prepared for them by the Spirit. If already we've learned how to let go of one another, if already we've let go of our homes and our houses and our families so that when that terrible wrenching away comes one from the other, somehow or other, though it will still cause deep agony, we've, we've already got through on it. And we know we shall meet again in, in, in a kingdom that will last forever. But how terrible if you and I have not got through on these earthly temporal things already, if we've not centered everything in the house of God, if somehow or other Christ is not our life. Terrible. Those days will bring harm and injury. So this, the glory of this letter house, will it truly exceed that of the former? We have in these verses, these last verses, a great messianic promise. The Lord will come to his temple and fill it with glory and give peace and to it all the treasures of the nations of the world will flow. 
Well, I think we shall have to stop really now, but you see, one just would love to go on to Book of Revelation and chapter 21 where it says the king shall bring the gl- their glory into it. You see, it, it's, a, it's, it's taken up in the Book of Revelation with that city where the kings bring their glory into the city. The treasures of the nations flow into the city and the city, what is the city? The city of the bride, the wife of the lamb. So, you see, it's a tremendous thing, this promise. <laughs> there has been much discussion about this phrase, the desire of all nations. Uh, in the authorized version, it is the desire of all nations. It follows the Vulgate. But in the revised version, in the American Standard Version, the American Re- Sta- Revised Standard Version, and Moffat and the Septuagint, they all translate it, the desired things of all nations. Nearly all scholarship agrees that the passage is prophetic of Christ's reign and kingdom. The question is whether it is prophetic of his actual person. Everyone is divided on this. There's been tremendous discussion. Then the desire of all nations. Dear old godly Fawcett says, the point is this. You see, the Hebrew noun is in the singular and the Hebrew verb is in the plural. And this has given everyone very great difficulty. Fawcett says, you know, whatever it is, it's true, isn't it? Christ is all desire. The desire of all nations, yes, their desire, and the desires of all nations. For Christ is all desire. Their desire for peace, their desire for righteousness, their desire for glory, their desire for honor, their desire for eternal life, their desire for unity, all is found in Christ, even if they know it. But it is also true that the desirable things of all nations shall come to him. In the end, the silver and the gold will flow to him. Everything that this world has will pay homage to the Lord as the ruler of it all. So Haggai comes with this message of encouragement to the people to continue in the work of rebuilding. Don't give up, he says. Don't give up. You see, the Lord has covenanted his presence to be with you to the end. And that's the key, both of encouragement in days of trouble and of perseverance to the completion of God's purpose. But more, the coming realization of God's purpose and glory is directly related to the building of this house. Therefore, it's as if Haggai is saying, be strong and work. Get on with the job. Don't give up. Don't let go. For the the point is this, the coming purpose of the Lord, the, the purpose of the Lord and the glory of the Lord are directly related to this rebuilding of the house. Well, I wonder where you and I stand in that. May the Lord help every one of us so to take note of what God says that he may deal with us and bring us into a true and right relationship with him and with his house.